Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. I'll give you some context here if you're unfamiliar. The book of Acts is the beginning of the church. It is what happened after Jesus had died and risen, appeared for 40 days, and then went back up, ascended back to heaven to his father. What did the church do after that? Acts tells that story. It tells the story of preaching of the gospel to thousands of people. It talks about days in which thousands of people at a time came to faith in Christ. It talks about miracles and healings and signs and wonders. It talks about persecutions, the cost of following this Christ. The book of Acts, in many ways, is an open book, not in that we insert ourselves into God's revealed word to us, but it is a book that doesn't actually have an ending because here we still are today, living in the church age, living driven by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel, the good news that Jesus has died for sinners, has risen to justify them, and reigns forever on his Father's throne. We come to Acts chapter 2 today, and this may be a familiar chapter to you. This is right after, verse 42, where we'll start, is right after Peter's big sermon at Pentecost. That was the point where you can even see a verse before, verse 42, that many people believed that those who received the word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I can't help but read that passage and think, what are we doing wrong, right? <laughs> but that's not necessarily the case, is it? It's not necessarily the case that we should expect that the pattern laid out at the beginning of the church is to be seen in full detail for detail throughout the church age. Because even in the book of Acts, we see a change. This doesn't happen every single day. There's this amazing explosion of faith at the presentation of the gospel at a particular point called Pentecost. And from there, we see the rise of persecutions, difficulties, even fighting within the church as well. The book of Acts does not present to us a model church that is perfectly sinless, that is getting everything completely right, and if we would just do everything from A, to, A through Z of their list, we would be a perfect church too. In Christ, we are perfected. In Christ, we are whole. But here, on this earth, we experience our fallenness even still. We experience our weakness. And so as we come to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, and you've probably already seen up on the screen or in your bulletin, the title this morning is The Work of Prayer. We're going to be looking at the primacy of it, and there's just this one short verse to start us off. So follow along with me, if you will, as we read Acts 2.42. And they, that is the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. What we have in this one short sentence is what the church has referred to as the means of grace. Grace that is purchased for us by Christ at the cross. Grace that is poured out on his church through his resurrection, his victory over sin, Satan, and death. 
How is this grace poured out? It is poured out through the means of grace shown here. Again, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. These things mentioned in this verse are the means or the resources of receiving that great transforming grace of God. That transforming grace of God, which is led by, is provided by, and delivered by the Holy Spirit of God himself. This is the way that we walk by the Spirit in the Christian life. And it would be worth your time to do a study of each of these things. We're only going to briefly look at each of those things, and we're going to land on the very last one. And I think perhaps right now is a good time to kind of say that this is something that's been stirring around in my mind for a good while. I really wanted to talk about prayer as a corporate body and what does that look like. And I couldn't really find any better place than to start right here in Acts chapter 2. Well, let's look at these four things for a moment before we get to prayer more definitively. These are the means of grace to which the church devoted themselves. What does devotion mean? It's kind of a romanticized word, isn't it? We usually use it in the context of marriage or, or even of, of family, you know, parents' devotion to their children or spouse's devotion to their spouse. This word in the Greek is talking about giving constant attention to, of persisting and persevering in something. And this is what they did. They devoted themselves they, in effect, said what we just sang, take my life and let it be consecrated or even devoted entirely to Christ. And these were the things, these were the means by which they devoted themselves to Christ by the power of the Spirit. They lived in this kind of devotion. And whatever someone is devoted to is the thing to which all other things take a backseat, right? I was thinking about this in the context of the sporting's world. And it was always fun for me growing up going to Jacobs Field, which now has a much less cool name, really, Progressive Field, Cleveland. And it was always fun to see that guy. I always ended up going to Detroit Tigers games, or I think it was the Twins was the other one that we always ended up seeing. And it was always fun seeing that one guy in a sea of other guys wearing Cleveland Indians gear. But there would be one guy in there, or maybe two, or they'd be scattered around wearing a Minnesota Twins hat or a Detroit, Detroit Tigers hat. See, the devotion of the Cleveland Indians fans at their home field, I mean, it can be pretty impressive. But what really is striking is that one guy who says, I'm going against the grain in all of this and I'm rooting for the other team. Devotion isn't something that we hide. It's not something we can truly hide. In fact, if we claim a devotion to Christ it will not be hidden. And perhaps a tough question for us to wrestle with us with this morning is that if we have hidden our devotion for Christ, do we have a devotion to Christ? Well, these are the ways that they showed their devotion to Christ by devoting themselves, first of all, to the apostles' teaching. Now, this is, in, an, in one sense, we could just say they devoted themselves to the Word of God. For the New Testament age, we have these books in the New Testament that were written by the apostles, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and now are the Word of God that we hold in our laps today. The Word of God was the starting point 
Luke, of course, wanted to put this one first because there's no greater means of grace than hearing from God himself. And I wonder this morning if there's any inclination in your heart to long for something more or other than the word of God as revealed in the scriptures. Because I know I find that in my own self often. How often do our prayers turn into, Lord, I would just like you to give me a sign. I'd, I'd just like to hear you. I'd like to, for you to tell me something. Could you speak to me? And inevitably, the Holy Spirit's answer is to return to the word. This is not to say that God cannot speak to us and that he doesn't speak to us through different circumstances we call coincidence, but the starting point is always the word of God. And that is important for us as well as we think of the matter of the work of prayer. Secondly, the fellowship. They were devoted to each other in the shared mission of proclaiming this good news of Christ. And this was, again, just as true devotion is going to show itself somewhere, this was a natural occurrence. If we're devoted to the word of God, we will be devoted to the people of God. One musician said it very well in a song, if you love Christ, you will love the church. You will love those for whom he died and those who are the object of his love. And so they devoted themselves not only to being in the Bible study, but they devoted themselves to the people around them in the Bible study, in the worship service, in their neighborhoods. They were devoted to the fellowship of other believers. We talked about fellowship a few years ago, and we used um, D.A. Carson's definition of fellowship being a shared vision for the same goal. The thing that united them as the church, though we see very soon in the book of Acts that there are still divisions and ugly spots that needed dealt with as people melded together in this life in Christ, we should see that the thing that united them was far greater than the thing that separated them. Because it is Christ who unites his church. So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. This is a very interesting one. I think largely it's easy to see this as talking about Holy Communion. They were devoted to celebrating communion, to that reminder of Christ's death on the cross and the promise of his return. As Paul says later on, that every time you partake in communion, you proclaim Christ's death until his return. They were committed to that. But there's also another thought here, that perhaps the breaking of bread was maybe just also an image of sharing of practical life with each other. That rather than simply saying, hey, these are the people that I worship with, that I do Bible study with, and then I have other people for all these other things. It's not, not as though they shouldn't have had other friends, but that they were devoted to sharing in life together. And we see that in the book of Acts when they decide to sell everything they own, all their properties, and bring it all into one pot, and all of them live together. The sharing and the breaking of bread, communion, perhaps even this is alluding to that idea of sharing in life together. We come to the last one, specifically prayer. And this would be a good thing to notice here that Luke doesn't tell us that they devoted themselves to prayer as an idea. But if you would look with me again, it says that they devoted themselves to the prayers. The prayers. When we see the prayers in the New Testament, it most certainly refers to set apart times for believers to gather together and pray. I read a book recently by Paul Miller called A Praying Church. You can imagine a lot of this is coming out of that book. But he says that corporate prayer takes a chunk of time where prayer functions like a load-bearing wall rather than a window treatment or a paint color. 
Corporate prayer carries weight. Carries weight. It carries the weight of the hopes of the people of God. That's what the early church has presented to us. That is rather what Luke has presented to us of the early church in Acts chapter 2. Again, I would say, let us not idolize the early church as though they had it all together and they were doing everything perfectly. They were not. I mean, we could consider the early church not only the book of Acts, but we could include 1 Corinthians. We could include Galatians. We could include these other epistles to these churches saying, you've got things so messed up. You're so far off. What's wrong with you kind of moments? certainly at the foundation of the church, a priority and a persistence in the work of prayer was essential. I don't typically like to throw a bunch of different scriptures at you, but I'm going to today. Romans 12 and verse 12. Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Romans 15.30 He wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers. Your set-apart times of praying together to God on my behalf. Ephesians 6.18, he says the church ought to also be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Colossians 4.2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And lastly, 1 Thessalonians 3.10. Speaking of Paul and his companions, he says, As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face. We pray most earnestly. Prayer was a thing that was devoted to in the early church that people were devoted to. And particularly what we're talking about is not the idea of prayer, but the work of prayer. Reading these passages and considering that word work with prayer, I'd ask you this morning, does prayer carry the weight of work in your life? And I ask you again, as many preachers say, with one finger pointed at you and four pointed back at me, or or three, or however that works, however hands work. I know so often my prayer life includes those moments of saying, oh, woke up in the morning, Lord, help me to serve you today as I'm brushing my teeth and going about my day, stopping for a meal and saying, Lord, thank you for this food, stopping for a moment to say, Lord, please help so-and-so with whatever issue they might be facing. Those are good things to be doing, and let us persist in that kind of constant prayer. Before bedtimes, before meals, those kinds of moment-by-moment in the midst of life, Live with the realization that God is listening to you. Don't lay that aside. Don't think lightly of those moments. But there's something else, too. It is the work of prayer. It is that setting aside of time and setting aside of our other priorities to allow our hearts to rest in the work of God. It's not unlike what we do on Sunday mornings. I know that for a lot of us, there's a temptation to imagine, boy, if I wasn't sitting in the pink chairs this morning, I could be getting a lot more stuff done, even things for the kingdom of God, or maybe just finishing my lawn that I didn't get to finish yesterday. I understand that. I understand that not only on Sunday mornings, I understand it in Wednesday morning prayer meetings. I understand it even in those moments that I say, I really ought to stop and pray and seek the Lord about this thing right now. 
how easily distractions come in, how easily we find ourselves wondering, isn't there something maybe better we could be doing right now? The work of prayer is wrapped up in a pursuit of God and a conformity to His will. And He has designed prayer as such that the work of prayer, again, please don't hear me saying this is the only kind of prayer. There's, there's moments, I hope you're praying right now, for instance, off and on, right? Um, we should be constant in prayer in that way. But this idea of the work of prayer is wrapped up in a pursuit of God and conformity to his will. And in that, God has designed the work of prayer to almost look like not work at all. To be more like what we often say, the waiting of prayer. You know, I love it when people tell me they hate waiting. Because I always want to be like, how does that make you special, right? Who likes waiting? We don't like waiting for our food. We don't like waiting for people to call us back. We don't like waiting for anything. We hate waiting, and guess what? It is an essential aspect of the work of prayer. And because of our immediate disposition against waiting for anything, kind of see the definition of what the work is then the work is getting yourself to sit still even if only for a moment maybe for 10 minutes to seek the lord someone has rightly said that prayer is thinking god's thoughts after him what are some of god's thoughts we know from isaiah he says my thoughts are higher than your thoughts in one sense those thoughts are not things that can be so easily accessed in that moment to moment prayer that again we should be doing But accessing the thoughts in the mind of God is going to take work. And it's going to be tiring. And if you sit down for an hour of prayer to seek the Lord's face and get up at the end of it, you might be so frustrated because you go, boy, I don't know what came out of that. I don't know what the point of it was. I don't even know if I did it right. And I'm really tired. (laughs) What have I gotten done? Thinking God's thoughts after him. Letting the word of God be our resource for prayer is essential in prayer. That is not to say that you cannot pray unless you've opened up God's word. No, absolutely. Even the simplest prayer of Lord help is an essential aspect of the Christian walk. Most of us, I think, know that. That we've, all we've been able to muster in, in, our, in our weakness is just, Lord, help me, please. I don't know what to do. But if we are going to do the work of prayer, we need to engage with the word of God. And we need to let the priority of the work of prayer be that we would draw near to our Heavenly Father, that we would be conforming to his will and not our own. What better place is that than to see that in the word than Luke 22? As Christ was praying in the garden before he was going to go off to do the thing that not only was clearly God's will, but it was the thing he was pursuing his entire life. And in three years of ministry, how many times did he tell his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and after three days I'll rise again. Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, sinless, never once deviating from the will of God, sits in the garden and says, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. And you almost kind of wonder, did he fail in that moment? Of course, we know better than that. We've looked at this passage so many times. Imagine you're looking at it with fresh eyes. Is it Christ's failure to express his weakness? No, it is his victory because it's from that weakness that he says, it's not my will that can be done, but yours. This is the work of prayer. 
getting from that moment of Jesus saying, if there's any way for you to take this away, please. The work of prayer is getting to the other side and saying, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, this prayer, one of the most best known prayers in the New Testament is also one of the most criticized prayers by the American church. And I'm not saying that openly people are saying, let me tell you about my critique of Jesus. But there's, there's been, I've been in many conversations, and I've seen this often, that there's a critical comment that comes from many about those who would tack on to their prayers, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There's a criticism that says, well, that's, that sounds like you don't really believe in the prayer that you just asked. It sounds like you, you really don't believe that God can do what you asked him to do. Why don't you just stick with that? I would tell you, church, there is never a wrong time to pray, not my will, but your will be done, because that is at the core of what true prayer is. Conformity to the word of God and the will of God. We see the will of God revealed in his word, of course. We pursue the will of the Father by sustained time in his presence. It's, it's in one sense, it's the proper response to a sermon, a Bible study, any kind of time in God's word should be followed up, even if only by a moment. But, but largely our, mark, our lives should be marked by a pursuit of God in prayer. By doing the hard work of stopping all of our other work. My goodness, how entertaining would it be if we all stopped for a second and made a list of all the things you need to get done today. I wonder and I know, I'll, t- I'll be the first one since I brought it up, I wouldn't include take an hour to spend with my Heavenly Father. I would include my lunch plans. I would include traveling. I would include yard work. I would include a nap. But you'd be hard-pressed to see me on a Sunday after church or to my shame at other parts in the week when I ought to be devoted to prayer that I'd actually be spending time in his presence. So maybe in one sense, this sermon is me looking at my own heart and going, "Uh uh-oh, bad news about prayer. I hope you don't take it as me lashing out on you for my failings. But I imagine that if the Lord is revealing this to my heart right now, it's something that we perhaps all should work on together. And that's a key thing, too, to what we see in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the prayers together. Boy, the privatization of religion has been one of the most destructive things to the church, hasn't it? The idea that my religion is my own business and it's something just for me, whatever I'm devoted to in the spiritual realms and all those kinds of things, I'll keep that to myself. We've already said you can't be devoted to something that you keep a secret. And it's perhaps easy for us because, you know, we stick ichthuses and WWJD stickers on our cars and we wear t-shirts and all those kinds of things. I wonder if we share in the life of prayer together as we ought. And as we ought, by that I mean as we would be benefited by. The Lord does not call us to prayer because he's up there in heaven just wringing his fingers, wondering, why won't they get to prayer? I just can't do anything unless they'll move in prayer. If they'll just seek my face, maybe I... No, he's not that weak of a God. Let us not think so lowly of him. The work of prayer is hard work. So let's do it together. If we're called to this work of prayer, let's consider some of the common diversions 
from the work of prayer. Diversions. Do you remember all that rain we got yesterday? It was funny. I talked to a handful of people in Northeast Ohio yesterday, and every time I, I started talking to them on the phone, they were saying something about, well, all this rain we're getting. And I'm like, what rain? What are you talking about? I had this moment yesterday morning where my four-year-old and I were sitting in the living room, and suddenly it just got super dark. And we knew the rain was coming. The thunder came, and it was, I mean, it felt like it hit our house. It was so loud. Looked outside, and instantly a downpour. But in the next instant, it was gone. Were you there for that? Did you notice that yesterday? It was really weird. And yet, also, I think I've kind of come to realize that that's fairly normal out here, isn't it? Right? Oh, good, it's going to rain before you can say the word rain. It's done. See, I was sitting there thinking, i got to rethink my day now. I was going to cut my grass today. I haven't done it in eight days. Guess I can't do it now. And as I say that, I look out, and the grass is already dry. This storm lasted all of 10 seconds, it felt like. And it had this booming power to it. I mean, our power went out for a second. Like, we were full of anticipation. Something big was about to happen, and it was over just like that. I just wonder if that's not a picture of my prayer life. If it's not a picture of the struggle that we have in our prayer life, that we say, okay, good, prayer, yes, I believe in prayer. Let's do prayer. Here we go. And before we know it, we're off to something else. It's ended as soon as it's begun. So why don't we engage in the work of prayer? What, what is the struggle that we have that leads us to prayerless living? Let me oversimplify it for you and maybe make you a little angry. I think we can boil it down to busyness and boredom. I actually had babies in there earlier this week, too. Mostly because it was another B word and it kind of all sounded all right. We'll talk about babies in a minute. Let's think about busyness. Busyness is, in many circles, the acceptable idol of American Christianity. Right? It is, it is, in a way, the way we justify things like prayerlessness, for instance. I'm just too busy. And in fact, we are busy, aren't we? We live in a day and age where we have electricity, which having the lights on at nighttime dramatically changed the work week, didn't it? But then beyond that, you carry a portable computer in your pocket. From where I know I could sit on my phone and do all my work in, in a whole day. That would be all that I really need if it boiled down to it. It would be enough. I could be working right now while I'm preaching. I could you know, start planning out next week. I'm multitasking. Busyness, though, becomes a sort of acceptable idol in that it becomes a temptation for us to boast. We have opportunities to prove our worth to the world by filling every moment of every day with things to do. And it brings up this question again, of what are we truly devoted to then? We're devoted to ourselves, to our own prosperity, or to our own message to the world of our worth and our abilities, our skills, all those things that are good. I mean, in one sense, there's a type of busyness that shows the creation mandate to fill the world, multiply it, to, to enhance what this world is, right? Christians should not be idle, slothful, you know, well, I'm just actually just praying right now, right? Like, no, you're taking a nap, right? Call it what it is. So we don't want to talk about that kind of busyness that says, hey, we're trying to be active, 
fruitful members of this world to the end of the glory of Christ. But is there a temptation in your own heart to embrace busyness in such a way that bolsters yourself up? Romans 12.2 warns us to not be conformed to the ways of the world around us. And this is one of the ways that we accept the world around us. The world around us is all about production. What did we produce today? Perhaps many of us, again, might think that when the service is over and we head out the doors. What have I produced out of that? What have I done? I haven't done anything. I don't don't feel okay with that. It's unsettling. Is busyness diverting you from the work of prayer? How about boredom? Talk to the other half of the room, right? (laughs) Boredom. In a lot of ways, when we come to a moment of prayer and we go, oh my goodness, what are we doing? We're sitting quietly. There's nothing to look at. There's nothing to listen to, right? I'm not being entertained. I'm not filling my time. But perhaps boredom isn't necessarily just about itching our ears, but boredom could be about the flood of all the other thoughts that come to our minds. I believe we find all those chores and other things being good or bad that are such a loud voice in our heads because we have come to prayer anticipating boredom. Not because we found it there, but because we already expected it to be there. And so maybe in one sense we've brought it with us. So many times of prayer are cut short because we've found something better to do, something more entertaining, more fruitful, or more productive. When boredom finds us, we see what we really struggle with in regards to what we know about God. We read as a family recently this past week in Leviticus chapter 9 that Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, that is the tabernacle, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. I mean, I want to go to that prayer meeting, right? And, and it's, it's interesting, too. My, my six-year-old asked, what were they shouting for? Were they going, yay, fire? I don't imagine so. I imagine this was a shout of surprise and maybe even terror or fear. The presence of the glory of God was among them. We may not be so blessed in this regard to physically see fire spontaneously appear. But are we so equipped by the Holy Spirit to know that his presence is with us? And that our God is an all-consuming fire? Perhaps what we need if boredom is our challenge in prayer... Perhaps what we need is a fresh view of who God truly is. Boredom has to come from either misinformation about God or simply an entire lack of information about him. But it seems that busyness and boredom are the heart issues that lead to prayerlessness. If we look throughout scripture, particularly in the New Testament, we see prayer is an inevitable expression of faith in Christ. It's going to happen. I mean, prayer can even just begin with, thank you, Lord. It's talking to God. It's inevitable for those who have been born again and now have a new relationship with God as their heavenly father. It's a response to what he said and what he's done and who he is. But if that's true of prayer, then prayerlessness in the Christian life is not a lack of spiritual skill, but of being devoted to a spiritual reality. 
Prayerlessness is that part of us that actually disbelieves the good news of Christ. And the only cure to disbelieving the gospel is, in fact, the gospel. So let's consider that. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. And we'll just look at one verse over there, verse 25. This one I would like you to put your eyes on if you would, please. In Hebrews, the author has talked about Christ as our great high priest. He's talked about how he's fulfilled all that stuff in Leviticus that we try to read thoughtfully, but sometimes end up skimming over when we're doing that in a reading plan. Speaking of this great high priest, in verse 25, the author says, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since, why? Why is he able to save to the uttermost? Why is he able to do what we proclaim that he has done at the cross? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let us not forget in our proclamation of the death of Christ, which is indeed the central message of the gospel. Jesus has died in the place of prayerless people. Those who would say, I have something better to do than to talk to the God who created me. Christ has taken their sin upon himself and died the death that all of us deserve to die. But it is because he lives that he can make intercession for us. Do you realize, church, that right now, Christ himself prays for you? Right now. That's amazing. You can't ask for a better prayer partner than Jesus. No, don't, don't say that that's what you're doing for women's ministry prayer partners. Well, my prayer partner is Jesus. Okay. Have, a, have a, a, a human prayer partner too. But if Christ indeed is interceding for us, if he always lives to make intercession for us, then the thing that should motivate us to the work of prayer is his work of prayer. And it should not only motivate us, but it should welcome us. Because we're not doing our own work, but we're doing the work that Christ is already involved in. The work that Jesus himself is doing before the throne of God. And he is not pleading for your sake with, with doubts and wonders and worries and concerns. He's pleading for your sake with absolute certainty that his Father is hearing him. And that just as it is true for us, that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself has no worry whatsoever that the Father hears him and answers him with the positive. The power for us to do the work of prayer is in the work of prayer that Christ does for us already. That is our motivation. Jesus himself thinks it's important to do the work of prayer for you. Let's engage in that with him. It is the death and resurrection indeed of Christ that gives us life and assurance that prayers offered through persistence, through that work of prayer, are received by our gracious Father who loves us. We just sang of that love of God. I heard you singing it. It sounded like you meant it. Come to prayer with that expectation. The Father who's not going to go, well, 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 well. Wonder where you've been, so-and-so. Haven't heard from you for a while. I must not be very... No, put all of that outside your mind. This is the Father who loves us and who, from the moment that you were born again, has seen you in Christ and accepted you in Christ. 
And he doesn't look at you and go, yeah, things started off pretty well and you were doing an okay job, but right now it's not so great. Do you remember the prodigal son? That wonderful, the, the parable of parables, as it were. The father who was betrayed by the son who basically said, I wish you were dead, give me all my inheritance and I'll go do whatever I want with it. When the son realizes what he's done, the Bible says when he came to himself and saw that he desired to eat the same things the pigs were eating, he went back to his father. And the audience that Jesus was speaking to, the Pharisees fully expected the father to say, well, 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 look who is back. What do you think you're doing here, mister? I thought you wished I was dead. No. He wraps his arms around his son. He welcomes him. Calls the servants to put sandals on his feet, put a ring on his finger, put the best robe on, kill the fatted calf. We're having a party because my son who was dead is alive. Perhaps we need to be reminded of that glorious gospel acceptance that we have not earned, but that Christ has earned for us. And in the matter of the work of prayer, let us come to it with that anticipation, that that is the one to whom we pray. So just as Christ has prayed and pursued the will of his Father, so must we. What must we do? Christ has won a superabundance of grace. We need to access it through the means of grace. The apostles' teaching, spend time in the word. The fellowship, spend time with each other. The breaking of bread, spend time in communion with Christ. And the prayers, set apart time to be with your heavenly Father. That is how we receive that superabundance of grace that Christ has for us. And Christ has an answer for our busyness and our boredom. In Mark 6.31, when the crowds were pressing around Jesus and his disciples and it was getting crazy and there was a lot of work to be done, he said, go away to a desolate place for a little while. Take a break. Don't just take a break like, don't start scrolling through social media and just get wrapped up in that. Take a break with me. Be refreshed and restored. When it comes to boredom, it's that love of Christ that brings us to that mountain peak view of who God is, such that what Paul says in Ephesians 3 is that he prays for the Ephesians church that according to the riches of the glory of God, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. God has answered that prayer for his people. God has called them to this work, but he has equipped them for that work. So prayer then is a response to God's word. It's an obedience to God's command. It's a connection to God's power and it's conformity to Christ's character. Another quote from Paul Miller in this book, The Praying Church. He talks about corporate prayer and says, the goal is not a huge fire, it's a steady one. The goal is not for us now to break out into the rest of the week praying. Maybe that happens, that would be really cool. I wouldn't be opposed The goal is not a huge fire for everyone to see necessarily. It's a steady one. It's a steady mark of the work of prayer in the lives of his people. 
how we've been equipped for the work of prayer. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit to lead our prayers. He's given us the fellowship so that we might have someone to pray with, to go before the throne of God and be reminded by each other's presence that Christ himself is there for us. Okay, but what about our kids? How do we teach them the work of prayer? Oh my goodness, if there's a spiritual discipline that I have asked for the Lord's help on, it is the work of prayer in the lives of my kids. So I came up with three things. These might be helpful for you. Come up with a simple formula. Come up with a simple way to pray as a pattern that your kids can internalize and repeat, recite with you, those kinds of things. Every day for our meals, our kids basically pray, Heavenly Father, thank you for this food. Thank you for, insert whatever they're excited about for the day. In Jesus' name, amen. That's it. Is God pleased with that prayer? Yeah. Simple formula. At nighttime, we pray over the passage that we've read, we bow our heads. We always go back to the Jesus Storybook Bible's definition of God's love. We thank you for your never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And tonight, would you calm our hearts, our bellies, and our minds, give us sweet dreams, and wake us tomorrow to your new mercies. We pray every single night. And I know there's, a, there's an inclination to say, like, well, that just becomes ingenuine and insincere and all that. Maybe. It can but it can also be a pattern to follow. I mean, Jesus himself gave us a pattern of prayer, didn't he? He gave us a prayer to follow. Well, let's do the same thing with our kids. Secondly, have them pray at meals. I guess I already said this, but have them pray at meals. Have them at different points in the day have that normal practice of this is where I engage with God in prayer. And then thirdly, offer prayer when they're sad or hurt. Don't immediately, well, I guess, you know, if they're serious enough, maybe you should run to the Band-Aid box. But don't let the Band-Aid box be the only place you run to. Run to Christ. Fourthly, share your burdens. This is a hard one, moms and dads. Share your burdens for prayer with your kids. Ask them to pray for you. Ask them to pray for you. What better way to show our kids our need for Christ than to ask them to join with us in approaching the throne? Well, what about in, when it comes to the matter of corporate prayer? Perhaps you're sensing a, a sort of need for this in your own life. Uh, come Tuesday, we're going to start praying from 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock. Come right after work. Come for five minutes. Come for two minutes. Come for an hour. Come for as long as you can be there or as little as you can be there. Come before dinner. Come after dinner. Tuesday night, 4 to 6. Wednesday, 7 a.m., right? We all love 7 a.m., it's another opportunity. But you don't have to just come to those prayer meetings. Set a day aside. Invite someone to join you in prayer. Just keep it simple. Say, hey, would you pray with me over the phone for 15 minutes? Set up a time with someone else. We can say, well, goodness, what? I don't like talking in front of people. I don't like speaking. Well, don't do that. Come to the prayer meeting and sit in silence. Maybe read a passage. Ask God for his help to make Christ known or, or to pray to heal Jeff's body during rehab or, or to bring unity for the church, whatever it might be. One-sentence prayers carry 100% more power than prayerless hopes do. So embrace it. 